When a killing or violence occurs, Hondurans, mostly the victims and their families, usually ask, who are the autores intelectuales, which translates to, who are the intellectual authors of the crime? I think I've mentioned this term before in previous episodes. Although the term doesn't translate well into English, basically what they're asking is, who paid for the crime? Whose interest did the murder or the crime serve? Who was the masterminds behind it? This is part three, or the last episode of the Drug War cover-up series. This series looks at the May 2012 DEA-led drug interdiction operation in a town called Awas in eastern Honduras. Four indigenous Hondurans were killed in that mission, and it led to a years-long cover-up by the U.S. DEA, U.S. State Department, and the Honduran government. Welcome to the Honduras Now podcast. I'm your host, Karen Spring. In each episode, I will be sharing human rights stories from Honduras and connecting them to global issues and North American policy. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome back, everyone. After taking a short break, I'm happy to bring you the final episode in the Drug War cover-up series. Today, I want to bring part one and part two of the series together into a broader analysis and discussion of the U.S.-led war on drugs. If you haven't heard part one or part two yet, I definitely recommend you check them out. It's been over 10 years since four indigenous Honduran people were killed in a DEA-led operation in the Mosquitia region. As we looked at in episode two, there has been no accountability, both in Honduras and most importantly, in the United States. Unfortunately, this is not unusual, especially when it comes to the so-called U.S.-led war on drugs. Today, I've invited journalist and friend Don Marie Paley to discuss what this so-called war on drugs means for accountability for the affected communities, including those in the United States and Canada, and of course, communities like Awas and others in Latin America. Don Marie Paley is the author of the book Drug War Capitalism. She's worked as a freelance reporter for over 10 years, publishing in a bunch of magazines and newspapers, including The Nation, The NACLA Report, and La Jornada. She's based in Mexico and holds a PhD in sociology from the Autonomous University of Puebla, Mexico. Without further ado, this is my interview with Don Paley. Don, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us today. You wrote a really important book called Drug War Capitalism. It provides such an important take on the drug war, as specifically the relationship between the drug war and the promotion of neoliberalism in Latin America. You've listened to the last two episodes of the part one and part two of this series, The Drug War Cover-Up. So I guess after listening to it and reflecting on all the research and all the writing that you've done on the drug war in Latin America, what do you think the Awas massacre tells us about the activities of the U.S. Uh, via its drug war strategy in Latin America? Thanks, Karen. It's so nice to be here. And um, I learned a lot from the first two episodes about uh, the Awas massacre. 
And I mean, it got me thinking about, you know, this research that many of us have been doing for quite a few years now, even decades, about the impacts of the drug war outside of the U.S. as well as inside the U.S. So I feel like one of the things that really came through in the first two episodes of the podcast, which I've also reflected on in my book, is just the level of of impunity, the level of irresponsibility, and the level of just outright violence that is used against civilians um, with no real reflection or with no investigation, with no intelligence, with no awareness. I don't know, you know, I've worked on quite a few cases um, as a researcher and as a journalist. And what for sure came through with, you know, in the podcast episodes is just how people going about their daily lives in the most humilde way, just traveling back to their community, carrying seeds for their community. People who are par- participating in, in everyday life are, you know, have their lives taken or have their lives irreversibly transformed by this really explicit violence. And, you know, there's a whole kind of, I would almost want to say like, a body of theory that would say that they were innocent bystanders, right? And that um, it was an accident and that it never should have happened. And I think that's true. Clearly it never should have happened, but I think saying over and over again that these are unintended consequences and that this wasn't supposed to happen this way and that the people who were supposed to be murdered in a boat from a helicopter in the air were bad guys is also like a false dichotomy. Like we shouldn't, necessarily approach what happened in the OS as something that is that stands alone in terms of like people being targeted on the pretext of their smuggling drugs. It happens all the time. It happens in Canada. It happens in the US. It happens everywhere. It happens at regular checkpoints. It happens it happens at borders. It happens all the time. It happens in, you know, with raids in, in activists' homes where later drugs are planted. So, you know, the, the use of drugs, the, the, the substance over and over again by authorities on the pretext of protecting this undefined mass of people, we can imagine the American people, let's say the US people, just comes at such a strong, strong, strong you know, huge cost for the victims. And it's the policies of prohibition that are so much more harmful than, than the drugs themselves. So one of the things I tried to work on in drug, on drug war capitalism, or I tried to open up, which is my first book, in terms of like discussion and debate and how we're thinking about these massacres or attacks or, or tragedies that are happening in the context of drug war, is to put them in the context of, of capitalism. So not thinking them of them as taking place on this other terrain, which is all about illegal substances and illegal narcotics and criminal networks, but to think of them as taking place within actually existing capitalism. So thinking about the murders of workers happening in Ciudad Juarez as linked to and as, as something that we should be thinking about within the context of the maquila system, for example. And in this case, for sure, thinking through the assassination of indigenous people returning to their home community within its full context, not just as something happening in the illegal economy, not just as some kind of fight on crime. Because I think that there's a real, there's a lot of problems with the idea that 
it was just innocent bystanders caught in the crossfire. It's like, no, they were targeted. They were targeted from error. And they were targeting people on this river because they probably knew they could get away with it. And honestly, they probably would have got away with it wherever they were doing it. But also because like, I do think that we need to do the work to understand how this violence is used in specific regions against certain populations, which tend to be super marginalized um, as a form of social control, right? And, and not just keep attributing it to like caught in the crossfire or, you know, a big mistake. It's like, well, clearly how many mistakes can you commit? So this year in Mexico, we have gone over 500,000 direct victims since the drug war started in 2006. And that's victims of homicide and victims of enforced disappearance. So victims of the most heinous crimes. And in a lot of those cases, potentially in the majority of those cases, you could make the argument that it was the wrong person and the wrong place at the wrong time, that they were an innocent bystander. But it's like, it's systematic, right? What's happening is systematic and it's being systematically used against certain communities, people of certain social class, people from a certain geographical area. And I think that's the kind of stuff that I try to encourage people to think through as well as like, you know, um, natural resources and other kinds of wealth and other ways of protecting land and wealth that folks in communities are using. The, the drugs just provide such a flexible pretext to go in, to militarize. I mean, obviously what happened in Awas is so, it's so powerful because it was like directly the DEA doing it, right? I think a lot of the times they're involved, but their hand isn't as visible, but it's certainly not like an exception to the rule. I would say it's, it's rather, it's more of like a, a paradigmatic case to understand so many other so many other terrible events that have taken place, not just in Mexico, also Central America, Colombia, and beyond, that have deeply, deeply impacted communal life, deeply impacted people's ability to survive and people's own lives. For what, right? Yeah, you, you pointed out a, a really important point, and I think this is something that comes up a lot in my work, is, is that you know, violence can be, is often justified by certain actors when they're like, oh, those people were involved in something that they shouldn't have been, or, you know, they were, they were, well, they were actually trafficking drugs, therefore it, oh, we're not going to focus on that case, or that's not going to be something that we raise because they were doing bad things, therefore, you know, the violence is allowed, or we're going to look, we're just going to let that one go, and then the drug war continues, right? So I think that that analysis is really important, that these are, you know, intentionally targeted um, and there's like a geography to uh, violence related to the to the drug war and interdiction, as they call as they call this one specific operation in Awas. So, but one of the things I wanted to ask you about is is that so I find that a lot of people are quite taken back when they hear about the Awas situation, and they you know maybe when they listen to the first episode is is that the DEA and U.S. forces were so focused on the actual seizure of the drugs. You know, you saw like these agents that propelled down from a helicopter and get into this boat. They were protecting the drugs. And, you know, it wasn't about anything else except getting this white powder in their possession, you know, and seizing it. And, you know, a lot of people ask, these are just these are just the drugs. Even if someone is caught in trafficking drugs, a, a person in like a small community, that's they're actually just small potatoes. They're not they're not these big the big guns in this whole in this whole drug war uh, thing that plays out. And so a lot of people are taken back by 
by how they're so focused on drugs. So I guess what I would ask you is why do you think that the DEA in this circumstance, but also in other circumstances, are so focused on, so they're focusing their efforts on that, on just seizing the cocaine or seizing the drugs and then moving on? I think part of it has to do with basically that we're talking, like you said, we're talking about packets of, of powder. We're talking about inert material. And that's a variable that they can control. In fact, they can move it themselves and they likely are moving it themselves and they can make it show up. They can make it disappear. It's not going to give testimony. It's not going to talk back. It's not going to give them problems. So it's a very specific variable that allows them to approach situations just through the lens of that variable. But obviously, like what you know, what you're mentioning about what about the big guns, the so-called big guns? Well, we know in Honduras and we know in Mexico as well through, you know, as well through the US court system that like extremely high level people in both of these countries, and I'm sure it's the same in other places, are the ones who are organizing the drug trade, right? The drug trade is being organized by state forces and by people who are in charge of state forces. And in Honduras, it comes to the level of the president. So for them to be actually doing the kind of investigation into these networks and all that kind of stuff, who would they be investigating? They would be investigating their counterparts. And in fact, they would be investigating themselves, right? So it's like, it's kind of, I don't know if catch 22 is the right expression, but it's a con- it's contradictory. It's I think one of the things that that has been useful for me in terms of thinking through this is that prohibition does not mean we're not doing anything, we're turning a blind eye, we're looking in the other direction. Prohibition and the prohibition specifically of narcotics is a highly managed way of dealing with narcotics. It's not hands off. It's not just let it go. It's It's a form of management. And that form of management has been militarized. And that militarization has been extremely, extremely useful. It hasn't been successful in terms of like actually stopping the drug trade or reducing it. But in drug war capitalism, I argue that I don't think that's the actual goal because I do think that the militarization of prohibition has been extremely useful, extremely useful in propping up right-wing allies of right-wing governments, of propping up certain governments themselves, of keeping down left and popular movements, of ensuring social control over all different territories. I mean, you've got Mexico now completely militarized to the hilt. And this started on the pretext of controlling the war on drugs. And today it's being deployed on the pretext of stopping people from migrating from southern Mexico to the U.S. border. But it was the drugs pretext that made it possible, right? So it's like, it's, it's a very, like I said before, it's a very flexible enemy because they can make it show up. They can make it appear. And we know that they have been, they, and by they, I mean the DEA, uh, the U.S. State Department. We know that they've had direct relationships with narco traffickers in the past. And we know through things like the extradition of Juan Orlando Hernandez or here in, in Mexico, Genaro Garcia Luna, who's, who's in the US, uh, who's the former head of, of um, security in Mexico. And also, you know, the arrest of Cienfuegos, who was the former defense minister in the previous sexenio, who was then sent back to Mexico and is now free. 
But the, these are the folks who organize the drug trade. The drug trade is not organized by guys on a street corner. And so really investigating the drug trade, it, it's like they can't do it because they, their, their own institution would collapse under the, under the hypocrisy, under the total hypocrisy of what they're doing. I think that's a really great way of explaining it, especially your point about the prohibition and how, you know, they can make cocaine disappear or appear. And it's interesting because, you know, when we were investigating the Awas massacre, people in the community would say, you know, everybody knows where the drugs are passing through. It's been going on for so many years and we've never had such a violent incident before ever. And so the fact that, you know, drug interdiction or the prohibition efforts are actually introducing the violence into these areas where drugs are moving relatively peacefully, you know, and anyway, so a lot of a lot of people in the communities mentioned that. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about and is, is that, you know, the DEA thought they, you know, they covered up the incident, they thought they could get away with what happened in the massacre, and all the events that happened that night. They were sort of, it was the voices of the local people that kept insisting and insisting and those voices built and more people got involved. And it was sort of like the voices of the local people for a long time against the DEA, against the State Department. And, you know, the DEA used that credibility that's naturally built into these systems of power to try and get away with what happened that night. And, it, you know, it took a long time. They, they told their version to the media, they told their version to Congress, and they lied about what happened that night to Congress. It wasn't until we were able to get to the highest levels of, of Congress and a, and a bunch of people did this, like taking the lead from the voices in the local community, that they did these internal investigations and it was exposed that they were lying the whole time. And so what I wanted to ask you is like, why is it so hard for the people of Awas or other communities that are affected by the drug war and prohibition in general to get any sort of justice? Yeah, that's that's a huge question. Um, and I think it I think it applies internationally, I think it applies globally. And I think it has to do with holding police accountable at the end of the day. I think police and military forces historically have enjoyed so much impunity for their crimes. And to this day, right, to this day, they continue to do so. And, you know, when I was, I was thinking about when, when have people got justice? When have people gotten justice for, for crimes committed by state security forces? There's no doubt that in every case, in every single injustice, people have fought, people have fought and people have fought and they have fought their whole lives. Like people fighting here in Mexico from the 1960s and 1970s who are now you know, in their 70s and 80s and still fighting and still demanding truth and justice, right? For the disappeared, and they're still not getting it. They're not getting it. And so I think the DEA is one among many police and military forces that just enjoys, they just wrap themselves, right, in a blanket of immunity, in a blanket of protection, in a blanket of, you know, bad apples. If they have to admit something, it's that someone messed up or that someone was, and there could be some kind of small sanction. But I feel like, you know, in the U.S., especially since um, after the killing of, of George Floyd and the massive protests that happened around the country, it brought my attention in a new way to the demand to abolish the police and how connected that demand is with, with the fact that we just cannot get justice in these systems as they are set up today. 
You know, and this actually is a really good lead into my next question as well. And it's kind of, I, I kind of struggle with this myself. And I think some people in Honduras do too. It's sort of like this double-edged sword that, you know, so many people in Honduras and, and around the world are watching the DEA do all these drug busts, whether it's, you know, uh, officials in the government in Mexico or anywhere else in the world or Honduras, you know, the U.S. Justice Department extraditing and accusing ex-president Juan Orlando Hernandez for drug trafficking and then taking him and trying him in U.S. courts. You know, I have found that, you know, I am happy to see that happen because I've seen what awful things have, that Juan Orlando Hernandez has done. But it's also a major double-edged sword because I don't, I don't, I don't want to prop up the DEA and, and uh, applaud their efforts because I know, you know, that they lie and I know what they've done you know, in the case of a was is the best is a really good example. So I guess trust their intentions. And I don't trust the intentions of the DEA that they're actually, they are actually cracking down on drug trafficking by accusing President Hernandez. So I guess my question is based on your research and experience covering the drug war. How do you understand the arrest of Juan Orlando Hernandez by the DEA and then his extradition to stand trial in the United States for drug trafficking charges? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, especially since it comes from a place that's like so personal, right? And so deep and it, and it, and it like touches those contradictions within, within, within ourselves, right? So I think that you're absolutely right to not trust the intentions of the DEA. Historically, extradition has been used to silence. So we have, the, for example, the extradition of high-level paramilitaries in Colombia, right at the beginning of what could have become a much more profound peace process than what they ended up living. And that extradition ended up only the folks who were the paramilitaries who were extradited to the US who had begun talking in Colombia, they'd begun talking about the connections, about the depth, about the, the, of the human rights abuses that they had been complicit in com committing, sometimes together with state forces, sometimes in concert with legislators, for example. All of that was quieted and they were brought to the US and the only thing that they were asked about specifically in the US was drug trafficking. We can see that as well, like if you look at the expediente against uh, Salvador Cienfuegos, the former defense minister of Mexico, who was in fact defense minister um, in 2014, when the 43 students from Ayotzinapa who were disappeared, he was only going to be indicted on drug charges only. So, there, so there's not, historically, these types of forums, the U.S. courts aren't places where we can learn about the multifarious ways in which Juan Orlando Hernandez or Genaro Garcia Luna were involved in repression, massive rights violations, in collusion with XYZ authorities. It's just, it's a way to reduce the discussion down to those same packets of white powder that you mentioned, right? And so it does have, it has had a very limited. It, it has had an impact of like limiting the kind of justice that that can come from those types of forums. And it's also, but it's also, it's so interesting because, you know, with Juan Orlando Hernandez, it opens up, it opens up a lot more questions about, you know, didn't Obama sign anti-narcotics agreements directly with this guy? 
Yes, right? So where's the accountability there? Like it, it should open a lot deeper questions. And I think that's always been the work of activists, right? So I'm sure people will be there during his trial bringing out these like contradictions and bringing out ways in which the U.S. actually fortified and supported and built up the ability of Juan Orlando Hernandez, his family, the armed forces under his control to effectively traffic narcotics all those years. We'll be hearing about that because of the work of activists, right? Um, so the trial like might open some space, but if it, if it isn't for the work of, of, of activists and journalists, right, and folks who are getting sort of more critical perspective on what it means that the president is being indicted as a narco trafficker, then it will stay in a very superficial thing that will be like, well, he's responsible for money laundering and 35 packets of white stuff getting to the United States, which is the least of his crimes. Yeah, I mean, I think you've touched the huge, gigantic pink elephant in the room in the courthouses and in, in the Southern District Court of New York. I actually really like going to the drug trials because not because I'm really into like, oh, the DEA and the Justice Department is doing this great job at cracking down on the war on drugs, but more because there's all these little timbits of information that comes out that tell you a lot about land control in the country and also other names of individuals that are just living the living the, a great life, like the, you know, the oligarchs of the elite in Honduras that are involved in drug trafficking and how it overlaps. It's this big pink elephant in the room, both because of the U.S. role in propping up Juan Orlando Hernandez, but also the fact that there's all of these remnants still of what these structures mean and that, that are still intact in Honduras. So I wanted to ask you one more question about your book about drug war capitalism. I think like our conversations really focused on Latin America, but I think that people that listen to this podcast, a lot of people are based in the United States. A lot of them are students. I think it's really important to talk about like, this isn't just, we're not just talking about, you know, U.S. foreign policy. Why do you think it's so important for people in the United States and Canada to read your book, even if they're not interested in the drug war in Latin America or what the U.S. is doing abroad? I think increasingly scholars and activists are considering both things at once, right? Are considering the, you know, incarceration, mass incarceration of so many people in the U.S., the criminalization of entire communities in the U.S., in Canada, or racist police, policing and state repression in the United States as being connected to what's taking place in Mexico and Honduras and farther south. You know, I think that there's also a lot of diasporic connections between both or all of these places at this point. And we're just more and more connected all the time. So I think understanding US foreign policy is connected to understanding just the US at home, how it is, right? Like one of the things I've been thinking about with AWAS as well in this massacre is like these types of violence are exemplary in the sense that like the DEA going and shooting from a helicopter at unarmed indigenous people in a boat is setting an example. It's setting an example for Honduran security forces, for any other security forces, that this is behavior that will be tolerated, 
this is behavior that is considered acceptable and this is behavior for which there will be no recrimination, right? And I feel like that kind of impunity is familiar to people who live in the United States who have seen over and over who've seen police officers murder people, you know, shoot them people in the back and especially black men, also black women. And like the case of Breonna Taylor is huge and basically get away with it, right? So it's like, these structures are connected and these forms of policing are connected. And I think the more we can sort of understand the connections between them and the fact that like police violence and the need for police abolition isn't just something that's important in the US, it's also something that connects us with struggles that may be articulating it in a different way, but the struggles are really pushing for the same thing, um, whether it's in Mexico or in Argentina or elsewhere. So I think for me, that would be like my, my attempt at like a, you know, these struggles are connected and, and police violence and violence from state forces is global. It's not just a problem in one place. Before I ask you to indicate like where people can read your stuff, is there anything else that you feel like I should have asked you or that you want to mention related to the drug war in Latin America or other important issues? Yeah, I think one thing maybe is that that can kind of get lost in these conversations, which are really focused on like violence and horror and terror is the strength of communities, the strength of communal organizing, the strength of activism and how it's important to think about how the repression that folks are facing is in a sense proportional to their ability to organize to resist, to conserve their land, to conserve their territory, to conserve their life ways, right? So understanding, and I know this is something that you do a lot on Honduras now and in your other work, Karen, is like as an activist and someone who's accompanied so many struggles is like, there's so much, there's so much inspiring activism and people always organizing in the most difficult conditions, right, in Honduras. And that's partly why there's so much violence against them. It's because they're literally like unstoppable. If, they're, if the state wasn't using these coercive repressive measures to keep people down, Honduras would be a completely different country. So would Mexico, so would Guatemala, right? And this, this like reaches us back through the history of the 20th century, but I would argue it reaches us much further back, right? To the, to the conquista, to the colonization, to the so many rebellions that happened that were quashed through force, right? And so I just think that keeping that present can sometimes be hard in conversations that are so connected with, um, with death, with people suffering, with people being disfigured for the rest of their lives, with people just dealing with so much trauma, with people being forced to leave their territories, their ancestral territories, et cetera. But to know that there is still, even, even in those conditions, there's so much organizing happening is I think what keeps me going, what keeps me like inspired. And I, and I hope through my work also, especially, you know, this is, I'm working on it, right? But it's something that I can help make visible because it's, it's why this repression exists is because of people's ability to organize for change. Yeah, I think that's an amazing point. I think it's an amazing way to end this interview as well. Like it's just to make people not feel like this is such a heavy topic, but there's really amazing things going on all around the world to resist and in the United States and Canada to resist this type of violence. So Don, where can people find your work? And I don't know if you have a recent article that you recommend people to read. Just yeah, where can people find you? 
Okay, so I'm on Twitter. It's at Dawn underscore or on Facebook as Dawn Marie Paley. And I've got a new piece coming out with Truth Dig, which is just relaunched um, about migration and, and militarization here in Mexico. But uh, otherwise, people can can uh, read all my work on my website, which is just dawnpaley.ca. Perfect. Thank you so much, Don, for talking to us today. My pleasure. That was Don Paley, author of Drug War Capitalism. Definitely read her articles and follow her work. She puts out excellent analysis and pieces from Mexico. Going back to what I was talking about at the beginning of the episode, I think it's pretty clear who the intellectual authors or the masterminds of the drug war really are. The goal now is to continue to push for accountability, particularly in the United States, where the money, the weapons, and the policy leading the drug war originate from. This was the last and final part of the three-part series, The Drug War Cover-Up. Although the series has come to an end, the Awas case and the pursuit of justice, both in Honduras and the United States, for the victims and their families is still ongoing. These types of struggles take a while to play out, and I'll continue to report on any developments in the case, either on the podcast or on the podcast's Twitter account, at Honduras Now. I'm so grateful to our loyal listeners and donors. You keep this podcast going. For those that are regular listeners and have the ability to do so, please consider becoming a monthly donor. If you're not able to, share it via social media or tell a friend about the podcast. This is Karen Spring, your host, signing off for now. Thank you so much for listening. Hasta pronto. Serán muchos Honduras tus muertos, pero todos caerán con honor. Tu bandera es un lampo de cielo, por un bloque de nieve cruzado. Y se ven en su fondo sagrado, cinco estrellas de paz.